Please turn with me in your Bible to Daniel chapter 5 for our study this morning. As we're going through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are heavy this morning as we come before you, as we think about the shooting in Las Vegas. And Lord, we pray that you would comfort churches this morning as they gather together. You would give pastors in Las Vegas wisdom. Lord, all of the family members and spouses and kids that are mourning the loss of a loved one. Lord, those that were there as survivors trying to process the trauma. And Lord, we look to you and we ask that there would be a healing in our land. God, such, such evils, such lack of concern for, for others. And even as we study in your word of crossing a line, it seems like in our country we've crossed a line, God. We pray that there would be an explosion of the knowledge of Jesus and a returning to a fear of the Lord. And that, God, we put our lives before you this morning and ask that you'd speak to us. Would you send your Holy Spirit in a very special way for this service in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Crossing the line. There seems like there's a moment in God's economy in the way that he makes decisions for a nation, for an individual, where we can cross the line. Where God can say, that's enough. You've gone too far And now here comes my judgment. Here comes my intervention. In the text that we're going to read, in the chapter we're going to study this morning, it's Belshazzar. He's he's the next great leader after Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. And he crosses that line. He goes too far. He has a big drunken feast with a thousand of his buddies and decides to go get the articles that had been taken from Jerusalem that were dedicated to God in worship and used them in his drunken feast and then begin to worship these false gods. And God says, that's enough. I'm going to get your attention. God writes on the wall, allows there to be a hand and a message that's given. And by the end of the chapter, Belshazzar is dead. The Babylonian empire is, is done. And God raises up the Medes and the Persians to be the next world-dominating empire. Sometimes the word of God is heavy, if we read it honestly. We, we shouldn't take that away from this text. It gives us a, an honest understanding of what sin does in our lives and causes us to, to be humbled before the Lord. So verse 1 of chapter 5, Belshazzar. Let's pause there for just a moment. How did he come to power? Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years. After he died, there were several other leaders before Belshazzar fairly quickly. And some even killing each other. And we see the transition of power still in many nations to be difficult. And that was the case for for Babylon as well. And then Belshazzar came on the scene. He was the son of Nabonidus. I'm not going to go through each of, of these leaders, the transition between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar because I can't pronounce their names so I will save you the pain and me the embarrassment. (laughs) The text refers to uh, Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father. He's not his father biologically. 
Uh, what the scripture is saying and declaring to us is that Belshazzar was in the footsteps of Nebuchadnezzar. He, he was the next great leader, strong leader in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar. So Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousands. This is not just some drinking in moderation. These guys are getting together and they're having a drunken feast. Their whole purpose is, is to just have this huge party with a thousand guys. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing to consider this morning is that sin craves company. Sin craves company. Why couldn't Belshazzar just do this by himself? Because in our sick, twisted state with sin, we oftentimes want to bring somebody else into it. Isn't that true? How come at a high school with a guy with his phone pulls up pornography and wants to get four or five of his buddies to view the pornography? Happens all the time. Because deep down, he knows it's wrong. Deep down, he knows it's shameful. But if he can get his buddies to come and enjoy that sin with him, he feels a little bit better about his sin, doesn't he? If I'm angry at someone, it's very difficult to not share that with somebody else. Not the person I'm angry with, but, but someone else to get them to give me some sympathy and validate my anger. Maybe even join me in the anger, right? Because it makes me feel better about, about my sin. We crave company. So a couple things to understand from this and to take note from this, especially young people, high school students, college students, young, young adults, is there, there's going to be people in your life that are going to want to bring you into sin. Sin craves company. There are people that are, are predators. They're wolves. They, they want to rob from your relationship with Christ. You need to be able to identify that. But that's true of any age. You're, you're going to have some coworkers that are going to want to bring you into sin. You're going to have some friends that are going to want to bring you into sin. You probably know some family members that want to bring you into sin. You crave, crave company. But also, we need to be careful that we're not the wolf, that we're not the predator, that we're not the person that's trying to, to bring somebody in to, to, our, to our sin. So first... Sin craves company, but then also, as we'll see in this text, is sin ignores pending doom. By the end of the chapter, the Medes and the Persians have come and taken the capital city, the Babylonian Empire. There is a siege right around this city, but they're not aware of it. Why? Because they're too drunk to even realize that their city is being surrounded. And they're also overconfident. We know from history that the Babylonian walls were huge. The outer walls were 17 miles long. 17 miles long. The walls were 22 feet thick. Think about that for a minute. 22 feet thick. They were 90 feet high. And then the outer walls had guard towers another 100 feet high. The city gates were made of bronze. So they're overconfident in their security that they have created. And they said, oh, we can afford to get drunk. 
And here, just outside of this party, is pending doom. Pending doom. This hit me this week as I was studying this text that a lot of times people are so caught up in their sin that they don't even realize that there's pending doom. How many people are just partying their lives away, getting drunk all the time, smoking pot, and they're not even aware of the fact that there's pending doom? In this life, there's some consequences that are coming, but then even more so with eternal life. Some people will party their lives away till they go to hell. Never stopping to consider the claims of Christ or eternal life or eternal separation from God. I think there's a lot of parallels to, to our culture. Kitty Corner, right, right across from, from the church, we've got Best Buds, sells marijuana. And yesterday in the beautiful weather, they were giving away free samples right out in their parking lot. These guys are too drunk to know what's going on around them. Could it be that we get so drunk and so stoned, we don't even care what's going on around us? What a humbling way for a society to be destroyed. They're just too drunk to realize what's taking place around them. What could be the decay of our culture? We're just too drunk and stoned to care. We're smoking pot like it's going out of style. Guys, we're Christians. We're believers. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's biblical. Why does God say don't be drunk with wine? Why why does God say he doesn't want your life consumed with marijuana? Because the Holy Spirit's better, amen? God's got the Holy Spirit ready to comfort, to help, to lead, to guide. But if my life's consumed with a substance, there's no room for the Holy Spirit. If you've got a cup, it can only be filled with so much. And so that needs to be emptied in order so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. So so sin will ignore pending doom. Sometimes when we get caught up in sin, we're, we're not even concerned with the consequences. We don't think about the consequences. We don't think about how it hurts God's heart and hurts those that, that we love. We're, we're caught up. We're caught up in the pleasure of sin for a season. Sin's fun for a season. These guys are having a great time for a moment, but then there's going to be a big price tag that comes with it. In verse 2, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels, which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So the ladies join in. On, on this party, the, the wives, the concubines, and they request the vessels that had been taken from Jerusalem. These vessels were designed for worship in the temple of the one true living God. When Daniel was taken captive, these vessels, these instruments were, were taken as well. In verse three, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, and iron, wood, and stone. They blaspheme. They're intentional in this. They knew what these vessels represented, and they said, we're going to just fill them up with wine, 
And we're going to worship our false gods, our, our gods of gold and our silver, of bronze and iron. There's, there's no God of Israel. There's no one true and living God. And we understand something about sin here. And it's that sin loves to devour the sacred. Sin devours the sacred. I don't know what it is about sin, but sin seems to be heightened or desire to take something that's sacred. You see this, you understand this. If you work with a a lot of people that are unbelievers, and they know that you want to glorify God with your mouth, what's their ultimate joy? To get you to tell a dirty joke. Like they tell dirty jokes, and they, they want to hear the Christian tell a dirty joke, don't they? Because they want to devour what's sacred. If, if their habit is to, to cuss all of the time, it's like first you're like, man, learn some new adjectives. Yeah. But that, that's just the way they roll. They don't know Christ is their Savior. But that's not enough, right? They want to get you to, to cuss. Like, yes, I got him. I knew he was just like me. I knew she was was just like me. If someone's not following the Lord and they're given over to their sexual sin, what do they love? They love to take someone's virginity. They they wear it as a trophy. Yeah, I, I got it. I devoured what was sacred. We're living in a time where it would be hard to define something culturally as sacred. And there were times in our country that there were things that we gave respect for. Respect for God. Respect for our parents. Respect for authority. Respect for our, our teachers. Even my generation, there was a certain way that was expected by culture that you would approach a teacher. And if you threw out that and you disrespected a teacher, your parents weren't mad at the teacher. You get what I'm saying? Your friend's parents weren't like, oh man, that must be a really bad teacher. They're like, you're a knucklehead. Knock it off. Like, if your dad doesn't pound you, I'm going to pound you, you know? Like, that was just the understanding. Like, you, you respect your teachers. There's something that is sacred that, that's there. We've kind of, we've thrown that all out the window and said, hey, there's, there's nothing sacred any longer. One of the things I think that's really powerful about the book of Daniel is it gives us Old Testament pictures, visuals of New Testament principles. And we see that a lot in in the Old Testament, but it's very clear in the book of Daniel. You know, the world system is really represented in Babylon. And what we find here is in the New Testament, God tells us that we're chosen vessels that are sanctified, set apart for a purpose. And when we take these vessels and we use them for sin, we're crossing, crossing that line. So let me read to you from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. It says, for this is the will of God. A lot of times we want to know what God's will is. Well, here it is. Your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Man, God's direct. He goes right to it. He says, here's my will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That one, that no one should take advantage 
of and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified, for God didn't call us to uncleanness, but holiness. Therefore, who, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. God says sex is sacred. He points out this particular issue when it comes to being set apart for him. Your vessel that God has purchased with his blood, if you're a believer. Wow. Not gold or silver, but his blood to purchase us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. No longer is the chosen vessel this cup that is in the temple, but you're God's chosen vessel. So when we take this chosen vessel and we engage in sexual sin, then the Lord says he's the avenger of such. He's saying, I love you enough to call you to a place where you walk in holiness and God's design in sexuality. Remember, God's a loving father. He wants you to have life and he wants you to have it abundantly. That's why Jesus came. So he designed sex. It's not that sex is bad, but he designed it to be expressed inside the commitment of a husband and wife in marriage. And anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And for believers, I'm speaking to the church, I'm speaking to us, I think we're living in a time where believers want to take God's message on sex and throw it out. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor in our church, I'm sitting down with people that this is their home church and they they come here and they're expressing to me and our pastoral team, in essence, there's a lot longer story than this. There's some flowers and cherries put on top but I'm going to do what I want when it comes to sex. And I'm going to love Jesus. And I'm going to come to Rocky Mountain Calvary. And who are you to tell me that I can't do what I want with sex? And we're trying to explain to him, hey, you can ignore me. I'm just a tall, skinny guy with a big nose. But this isn't me. This is God's word. This is what God says to, to believers. This is what he has for us. And he's calling us to to live inside of this. So may we not cross that line and say, you know, here's something that's sacred. Let's keep it sacred. Let's, Let's not allow our sin to take over and devour something that is sacred. You know this, but I want to remind you is you will never regret walking in God's ways in any area of your life, especially including sexuality. And none of us are too far gone. If you look at your life this morning and you go, you know, it's not lined up with what God's heart is, with God's intent. I know that I'm living a sexually immoral life as a believer. Guess what? Just as we sang this morning of God's grace and mercy, God loves to restore broken sinners, doesn't he? But he asks us to repent. He asks us to turn. He asks us to be willing to walk in obedience to, to his, his word. I mean, does the world really have the market on sex? I mean, does, does Satan really have the message on sex? Like, how is it really working for, for the world? You know? How is it really working for us as believers when we reject God's commands? Isn't it time for the church to come back to God's commands? 
in all areas and say, Lord, help me in this. This is your command. So Lord, help me. I'm choosing to walk in in your ways. Let's go on in our text. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Imagine this, just a man's hand all of a sudden appears on the wall and begins to write. On top of this, you're drunk, right? (laughs) Is this real? Am Am I really seeing this? It's interesting, there's another time that God wrote. It's John chapter eight. There's a woman that's caught in adultery and brought to Jesus. Saying, Jesus, you know the law. She must be stoned. And Jesus got down on the ground and he just began to write. He didn't say anything. He just began to write. God wrote. But we do know, we don't know what he wrote, but we do know that the oldest to the youngest left one by one. So we imagine that Jesus maybe was writing a date. And all of a sudden, the oldest guy, the old dude, he left. He knows that date. That was the day he sinned sexually. And then Jesus just writes down a website. (laughs) A few more guys leave. Keeps writing. Before you know it, there's nobody left. You who are without sin cast the first stone. Jesus still deals with the sin, speaks to the lady and says, go your way and sin no more. That's the message of the gospel. Those men were taking advantage of God's vessel. Even though this lady was in sin, where's the guy? They didn't bring the guy. This, this lady's not getting justice in the midst of, of this. And so Jesus stands up for her. So we learn a lot from these vessels. One, I'm a vessel of honor. If I just choose to use this vessel however I see fit, I'm going to have to answer before the Lord. But also, if I start to treat other people in a way where I'm defrauding them, I can expect God to do some writing. Jesus did some writing saying, hey, you're not going to treat this lady this way. I'm going to stand up for her. Verse 6 Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. He freaks out. He's terrified. The king cried aloud to bring the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck And he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Wants to know what the meaning of the writing is. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known the king's interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. God once again humbles this most intellectual group. Here comes the queen, and this is interesting. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The king, the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts be, trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom, 
and whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving rizzles, and explaining enigmas were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So Belteshazzar was Daniel's Babylonian name. This queen is worth commenting on. She's not in the drunken feast, even though the wives and concubines were included. She didn't go in. She has the wisdom, the foresight to remember Daniel. She knows of Daniel. Daniel had gotten her attention at some point in her life. She comes in to the banquet once the writing has been on the wall and speaks to her husband, you really need to go get Daniel. You may find yourself in that situation where your spouse doesn't know the Lord, your spouse isn't following the Lord, and you don't have to enter into their sin. She's polite, she's loving, but she doesn't enter into the sin. And God's going to write on the wall. And then when God writes on the wall, there's that opportunity to be able to, to speak truth. So the king responds, and he says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. King says, This is a great idea. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah, who my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard of you. The Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation to the king. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. To me, this speaks a lot about Daniel's character. We know the years are going by. Daniel's getting older. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. Some other kings have come and gone. And Daniel's continued to serve the Lord. Daniel's continued to walk in integrity. And it seems in some ways he's almost kind of forgotten by Belshazzar. He's, he doesn't have the same kind of influence that he did with Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel's not worried about it. He's living for God. And then when everything hits the fan, here comes Belshazzar, hears of Daniel, and Daniel's called back into to the mess. We can really relate to the life of Daniel, living between two worlds. That's what we've titled this series through, through, through Daniel, because Daniel loved the Lord, but yet he was living in such a secular, twisted culture. And even though there's so much sin around us and compromise around us, Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And we can choose to be a Daniel. You can be, choose to be a Daniel. No matter what your life's been like in the past, this day going forward, man, you're walking with the Lord, keep walking with the Lord. Godly character. Integrity. Loving the Lord. Being in relationship with the Lord. God's gonna use that. When we get in further into Daniel's life, 
We hear about his prayer life. It's his prayer life that they used against him to throw him into the lion's den. And they say, we know that Daniel prays three times a day and he's done that since his youth. This kind of integrity doesn't just happen by accident. Daniel had disciplined himself to spend time with the Lord. And as he spent time with the Lord, out of that flowed this wonderful character and this godly, godly legacy. I think for, for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and other believers that were living at this time, there wasn't a lot of middle ground. Daniel was either going to go with Babylon and its system, or he was going to go with the Lord. And I think we're living in the same type of time. We, ha- we have a choice to make. Are we going to go with the system of the world, or are we going to go with the Lord? Go with the Lord. Spend time with him. Invest in that relationship. In verse 18, O king, the most high king, God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. He's speaking to Belshazzar and he's reminding him of how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and language trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up in pride, that's what we studied last week, And his spirit was hardened in pride. That's what pride does to us. It hardens our spirit. He was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and the dwelling was like the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he wishes. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. He was unwilling to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's experience. He knew this story well. There's a lesson in this for us, isn't there? That God holds us responsible to learn from other people's examples. First in Scripture, don't you love the honesty of Scripture? I mean, man, talk about a flawed group of people. For us to be able to learn from their mistakes and also where they plugged into a relationship with the Lord. Learn from those in Scripture. This is a very comfortable way to learn some very hard lessons if we're wise. But also, learn from your family and friends. Do you have an Nebuchadnezzar in your family? Learn from him. And it's true, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Have you ever opened up your mouth and your dad fell out? <laughs> your mom fell out? You're like, I never was going to say that to my kids. I committed I would never say that to my kids. And oh, I, I, I said it to, to my kids. And it's true that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. But in Christ, we're not destined to make the same mistakes as our parents. We're new creation in Christ. And it's the desire of every parent that we would stand, that our kids would stand upon our shoulders, learn from our mistakes, learn from our successes, and go further. And then grandkids would stand upon their parents' shoulders and and go further. Have you taken the time to to learn from people in your family and their their mistakes and friends and for those that are in Scripture? And, And Belshazzar didn't. 
and you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar was actually opposing God. In our sin and our rebellion, we take an adversarial position against God. The New Testament says that we are enmity against God when we're in that place. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you've not glorified. So here are you glorifying these statues that can't do anything and you've ignored the God that holds your existence in his hands and you failed to glorify him. The fingers of the hand were set before him and the writing was written and this is the inscription that was written. Meeny, meeny, tekel you farsen. This is the interpretation of each word. Meany, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Pretty clear. You're finished. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. God has the ultimate scale. God has weighed you, Belshazzar, and you've been found lacking. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. He's going to enjoy this position for about four hours as the Medes and the Persians come in and take over. And, and he will be given responsibility in the next regime. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. King of the Babylonians was, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being 62 years old. History tells us there is a, a Greek historian who recorded this event, the fall of Babylon. How they were able to get into Babylon was to divert the Euphrates River. Went underneath the gates, came right in while they're in this drunken feast and conquered the city. Jeremiah 51, 57 through 58 prophesies this event in, in great detail. Isaiah 44 and 45 prophesies Cyrus, who was the king of the Medes and Persians. Darius was a sub-king under Cyrus. This was always in the heart of God. God knew, he saw the beginning from the end, and he knew that this is the direction that Belshazzar would go. So the last thing we see about sin in our text is that sin has a certain outcome. It has a guaranteed outcome. It's certain. The wages of sin is death. How serious is sin? So serious that Jesus had to give his life for it in order to provide forgiveness. So anytime that we engage in sin, there's the, the outcome is certain. And thankfully for God's grace and his mercy and, and his redemption, there is forgiveness and there is restoration. But the path was clear for Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the example that Belshazzar should have learned from. God holds him accountable for that. So do you think that God might hold us accountable to learn from Belshazzar? Amen. To learn from both. To learn from Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Have you crossed the line 
as a believer. You're God's child, but you're, you're doing whatever you want. Maybe even later today, moments from today, you've, you've got plans to engage in sexual sin. And this message hasn't reached you. It hasn't changed your mind. You're, you're going to go forward with it. You're God's child. You're accountable to him. God's very capable of putting the writing on the wall and he'll do it because he loves you. Maybe you've, you've already decided today, even though it's a, a Sunday morning, you're going to hit choir practice early. And when church is done, you're going to go out and drink and you're going to get drunk and it's not going to be in moderation. It's, it's going to be sinful drinking and that's how you get through life. And you're like, man, I'm, I'm not going to respond to God's word but I'm a Christian, you know? Maybe you're like, I don't know where this guy is coming from. Doesn't he know that it's 2017? Pot's now cultural. I'm gonna keep smoking pot, you know? There's nothing legal about it. It's organic. It was in the garden. God didn't intend to smoke it, right? To make so-called brownies and ingest it. You're like, yeah, I'm just going to keep going. You know what you're missing out on? You're missing out on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't play games. He wants to give himself to you in a fuller way. To me, in a fuller way, but he's saying, look, you've crossed the line. And this morning, repent and come back. Repent and come back. The prodigal son who had departed from a relationship with the father spent some time in the pig pen, literally. And he had the revelation, the understanding, the epiphany that my servants, the servants have it better in my father's house than I do. And he got up and he left and he returned to the father's house and the father was waiting. He was waiting. He looked every day to see if his son would come. And here comes the sun. And it's the only time that God's depicted in Scripture and being in a hurry. And the father runs. And you're like, oh no, here comes the lecture from dad. You wasted all this money. How could you do this? You're not coming back into this house. But instead, he puts a robe on him, gives him a fresh pair of sandals, calls out and says, we're, we're, we're having a party. The son's coming home. God hasn't changed. You're saying, well, well, God's not near to me. God's not speaking to me. God's abandoned me. No, you're still in the sin. God's light. He doesn't dwell with darkness. He's withholding that fellowship with you. The father didn't go with the son to the pig pen. You hear me? God never leaves us or forsakes us, but we're going to lose intimacy with Christ if we're like, ah, I'm a believer and I'm just going to stay in my sexual sin. I'm just going to have it my way over here. God's like, I'm with you. You're grieving my heart. But if you want to come back to a relationship, you got to leave that. The prodigal left that and the father was ready to restore. So as we worship, there's going to be a prayer team that's here in the front. And if you need to come back to the Lord, Come back to the Lord. Don't continue. Don't stay in that place. You know, you know, you've crossed the line. Maybe it's that 
your heart is there, but your actions aren't. Like, phew, this isn't for me because I'm not out doing that. But your heart, you are. In your heart, you've already decided. But you're too scared to do it. Well, praise God, you're too chicken to do it. But God wants to deal with your heart. Eventually, your heart's going to come out. Come back to the Lord. Maybe you have never received Christ as your Savior, and you see the damage of sin in our text. Man, judgment's coming. Eventually, we're all going to stand before God, and only those who trust in Christ are saved. And as we worship, come and turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. He's God. He died for your sins and rose again. You're not joining a church. You're surrendering your life to Christ, inviting him to take control of your life, and he'll save you. The Holy Spirit will live inside of you. So let's pray and let's respond to what the Lord's doing in our hearts and our lives. Father, we know that real change comes from the move of the Holy Spirit, that your word brings life. So we just ask right now that you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to always come back to you. And as we worship, may we respond to what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, 